Okay, so please welcome Rabbi Harry Manoff. Okay. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Um, so I've been, as it's been said, I've been coming here for a number of years, and I had to find an, a completely new topic to share with you um, today. Um, so I reached back 40 years ago to writing my uh, rabbinic thesis at the, Hebrew Union, at the Hebrew University, I'm sorry, the Hebrew Union College in New York City. And I had a professor, Dr. Kravitz, um, who taught Midrash. And he taught, and Midrash is the rabbinic literature that kind of fills in the gaps in the stories with more stories, um, with the stories of the lives of the, of the biblical characters, with the stories of the lives of the rabbis. And it's a process of digging deep into the text in order to try to find out uh, what the laws are, what the ways of living are. Um, and so I found that to be fascinating. I always enjoyed uh, reading these stories. So there was one, there's one collection of these. They, they, they were collected in the Middle Ages for sermons. And one collection called Tanchuma, or Yilam Denu, which means let our rabbis teach us would ask a question of itself, answer itself, in a story form. And uh, one of these is, does prayer work? Does prayer work is the question that it asks itself. Now, in order to understand this question, you have to look at the legal traditions that are underlying it. And it starts in a rather unusual place. And that is in the biblical book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 12, it talks about childbirth. And I want to read you the quote exactly so that you, uh, pay, you have to pay attention very clear, carefully. And the Eternal spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, If a woman gives forth seed and bears a male child, then she shall be ritually unfit for seven days as the days of her ritual unfitness shall, shall she be separate and on the eighth day the flesh of the, of the child's foreskin shall be circumcised skip a verse to verse 5 but if she bears a female ch- child then she shall be in ritual infirmity or ritual unfitness for two weeks etc so the rabbis look at every single word, every single word. So let me read this one more time to you. If a woman gives forth seed and bears a male child, she'll be in ritual impurity for seven days. But if she bears a female child, she shall be ritually unfit for two weeks. Now, clearly there's a difference in the, num- the, the, the days of ritual unfitness, right? If it's a boy, it's only seven days. If it's a girl, it's two weeks or 14 days but what else is different in those two two uh, quotes two sentences the seed giving forth seed right so the question that the rabbis want to know is what does that mean right what does that mean to give forth seed um, and the bottom line anybody want to take a guess at what it means 
So the bottom line is the rabbis interpret that to mean that she has to orgasm first in order for a male child to be born. Um, that's what it says. I'm not going to say it's an interpretation. That's what the words say. Uh, yes, it's an interpretation. But it's also what the words say. Hold on. They, that is not an unanswered question. Okay. That is a question that's part of this discussion. Okay. But it's only going to come at the very, very end of the discussion. The, rab, the rabbis say that if, if a man wants a, a, a male child, a boy to be born, he has to pleasure his wife. Okay. It is a, um, in Jewish law, it is only the woman, only the wife in a marriage that has sexual rights. Only the woman can, uh, can agree to, but also demand a sex during the pro- appropriate times of the, of the month. Okay? Now, there's another thing that says that if you want to have a baby boy, you should have put your bed in the north-south direction. We're not going to go into that because that's obviously folklore. But if, if you want to have a male child, in that world it was very, very ch- important, right? Then the woman has to be pleasured first and has to orgasm first, according to the rabbis. Now, there is some science to that. Believe it or not, there is some science to that. And that is... The female orgasm changes the chemical balance in the uh, vaginal region, and the male sperm has a better chance to survive in that in that case. Um, and that's why there used to be cookbooks for having babies, where you could use a either an alkaline douche or an acidic douche in order to have a better chance for the uh, sperm to survive and therefore to impregnate. And I once was a, a very, very young rabbi in San Luis, San Luis Obispo, and I gave this talk to Hadassah women. These are usually older women, support the Hadassah Hospital in, in Jerusalem. And I told them that there were these books that help people have, uh, have the sex of the child that they want. And one of the older ladies just said, yes, rabbi. And half the people returned the book. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to leave it at that for now. I'm not done. That's just the beginning of the discussion. Now we get to the discussion itself. Are you ready? So, it says in our Mishnah that one who builds a house or bought new vessels says a blessing. That's the Shechianu player. Um, which is that blessed are you, eternal God, rule of the universe, who has kept us alive and sustained us and allowed us to reach this new time. Okay, so that's a very important prayer. We say it whenever there's something new. We say it for the new holidays. We say it for new clothes. We say it for a new house. Um, yesterday was the first time I've been to a double bar mitzvah, and believe it or not, with two bar mitzvahs in the, in the same service uh, in my 40 years as a rabbi, but that's because I've always worked in small synagogues. Uh, so I said, Shekhiana. Okay. Then it goes on, the Mishnah goes on. One blesses, says a blessing even for something that we perceive to be evil. 
Okay, there's appropriate blessings because it might bring benefit. And we also save the blessing for something that's good that may end up re- uh, bringing us some ba- something bad. Okay, the example is, um, for example, if you if there's flooding, you still say a blessing to God because after the flooding's taken care of and after everybody's re- reestablished, the fields might be more fertile from the moving of the soil, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's why you say that's the example it gives here. Now we get to the business. To the business. Um, one who cries about, one who cries out in prayer concerning something that's past is uttering a prayer in vain, is taking God's name in vain. If you say, um, let my, uh, well, one of the examples, the later example is, if you come back from a journey and you're, you hear somebody in your neighborhood shouting, fire, fire, you cannot pray, dear God, don't let that be in my house. Right? Because it's already been established where that fire is. And if the fire's in your house, God's not going to pick it up and put it somewhere else. Right? So you're taking God's name in vain. You're, you're saying a prayer in vain. It's something that's already been determined. And what's the first example that they give for this? If a man's wife is pregnant and he, he says, Dear God, please grant that my wife bear a mere child. This is taking God's name in vain. Okay, so once she's been, once she's uh, pregnant, it's already been decided on whether um, what the sex of the embryo is going to be. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Hang on, because I'm not done yet. <laughs> okay, so that's the basis of this whole conversation that's going to come on now. Now, what happens is, is that there's two different uh, major literatures of the first millennia for the Jewish people. One is Midrash, these stories that I'm going to tell you. And one is the Talmud, which basically goes and looks for the laws that are derived from the, from the Torah and the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Bible. Right? And the Talmud uh, has two editions. The more famous and more important one in the Jewish world is the Babylonian Talmud. And the less used and shorter one is the Jerusalem Talmud. Okay? Now, the Babylonian Talmud was edited, depending on who you're asking, some say it was 650, the last named rabbi, all the... Many of the teachings, or most of the teachings in the Talmud are in the name of a specific rabbi. Rabbi X said... Or Rabbi X said that his teacher, Rabbi Y, said. But it usually has the name of a rabbi associated with it. And the last named rabbis, Rabbi Ashi and, and Rabbi uh, and Rav, who are the last two named, are around the year six, 650. My teachers have taught that probably this, there's an anonymous period from, nine, from 650 to about the year 1000, let's say, in which anonymous additions and edits were added to the the Babylonian Talmud. Okay? So I'm going to say that the Babylonian Talmud was finalized at the end of the first millennia of the Common Era. Now, why is this important? First of all, there is no Babylon. Anybody who's read the Bible knows that Babylonia was destroyed by the Persians in 
in the 6th century before the Common Era. But anybody who reads the Bible knows that the kingdom of Judah was defeated and then exiled to Babylon by the Babylonians. And so there was a huge, there was a community of displaced expatriates in Babylon, present-day Iraq. Until the first Gulf War, there was a Jewish community in Baghdad from 586 before the Common Era until the first Gulf War, when the Americans took the last remaining Jews out and brought them to the United States. Um, and that's because, we, I think, that during the Gulf War, the Iraqis referred to the American soldiers as Jews. That's what they called them. That, you know, everybody has nicknames for your enemy, right? Well, the nickname for the enemy during the Gulf War was the Jews, meaning the Americans. Okay, so that, the last handful of Jews who were in Baghdad left then. But from the, from the time of 586, before the Common Era, there was a community of basically upper-class Judeans who later will identify as the House of Israel, who will later be identified as Jews, right? Because the Babylonians exiled only the people they could use. So they took the upper class. They took the nobility, they took the priesthood, and they took the upper economic class and took them to Babylon and resettled them together. Unlike the Assyrians, who destroyed the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, they scattered people all over the empire. They took only the upper class, but they didn't use them. They just scattered them to make sure that they couldn't come back and re revolt. Everybody with me? So, move ahead now to the Roman period. And the Romans are beginning to persecute the Jews, in, or the Judeans in the land of Israel. And so, the newly formed group of sages who will be rabbis will escape to teach the communities that exist. And one of the main places that they went was back to what they, from the Bible, called Babylon. Even though it was Persia, after it was defeated by the Greeks, it still was Persia, it was the Sassanite Persians. Um, really, really, we should be calling this collection of law that the Sassanite, or, or at least the Persian Talmud, instead of the Babylonian Talmud. Don't ask for consistency, I'm not into that. Okay? Not important. So the question is, is that if you have this exile community, this uh, expatriate community in Baghdad, um, and they're establishing major universities called yeshivot, and they're headed by very powerful rabbis known as Gaonim. Uh, Gaon is a leader of one of the great academies, and uh, Gaon in modern Hebrew at least means genius. I really wanted not to be a rabbi anymore. I wanted to be a gaon, but I didn't have a yeshiva, so I didn't get that. Um, so the gaonim um, were, were interested in establishing law that could keep this, uh, this exile community together. Okay? So in the Mishnah, edited around the year 200, the first collection of Jewish law, it says... You're not allowed to pray in a loud voice. Okay? Anybody want to take a guess why you can't pray in a loud voice? 
You don't, well. No, that's actually one of the medieval uh, answers to this question, but it's not the original answer to the question. Um, but it does have to do with somebody hearing you. So that's the other reason, is that you don't have to yell to God. God can hear what you whisper in your heart, right? But what about so loud that your neighbor hears you? You might be distracting your neighbor, right? So the... the um, so the rabbis of the Talmud in Persia, in Babylon, say that you're not allowed to pray in a loud voice because you'll disturb your neighbor. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, in the Holy Land, they say don't pray in a loud voice because God can hear you whispering. One of them is interested in keeping society together. And one believes that they're at the holiest place in the world that you can that spirituality is much more important than social law, right? Clearly, the Babylonians are much more interested in keeping society together, and the Jerusalem community is interested in prayer, per se, just as a way to connect with God. Okay. So, um, so here's this, the first Midrash on this story. It says in Genesis, and afterwards... She bore a daughter. Now, I have to give you a little background to this. Um, this is the, the name birth of the only woman named in her birth, has a birth story in the entire book of Genesis and indeed in the entire Torah. Does anybody know who the only birth story, female birth story is? This is really obscure. Okay. Jacob had two wives. And two assistant wives, right? Sometimes we call them concubines or slaves or whatever. They were assistant wives. Abraham started that tradition with Hagar. Sarah was his wife, and Hagar was her assistant, Abraham's assistant wife. If you've been following the the, uh, Handmaid's Tale, you understand this is where they get the idea of the uh, infertile woman, uh, upper class woman uses a lower class woman to have a child in her place, and then she raises the child. And that's what Sarah was supposed to do. Jacob, who is, if you've been to any of my other lectures, you know is not my favorite character. I, uh, he's a heel. And by the way, the name Jacob means heel because he was holding onto the heel of his brother, twin brother Esau, when he was born. But he, it turns out that he is a heel, not just that he's holding onto a heel. He's, just, he's not a nice person. Okay, so Jacob steals the blessing from his father uh, Isaac when Isaac is blind toward the end of his life. Do you know this story? It's not really that important. But, but he, his father's blind. He wants to bless the older twin, who is Esau. But Rebekah wants the blessing to go to Isaac, I mean to Jacob. So Rebekah dresses um, Jacob as Esau and Esau's clothing. But Esau is hairy and Jacob is smooth. And so she puts goat skin on his arms and on the back of his neck so that he feels uh, hairy to his father. Now, what goes around comes around. This is the first story of karma in the Bible. Um, and so when Jacob escapes from his brother who wants to kill him for doing this, he goes to his uncle's house, Uncle Laban, and sees Uncle Laban's daughter, his cousin, um, Rachel. And Rachel is gorgeous. And Jacob falls immediately in love with him, 
with her. And so Laban says, well, I'd rather she marry one of my own people than somebody else. But you have no dowry, so maybe if you work for seven years, you can earn a dowry for, for to marry her. Anybody know what happens next after seven years of work? They switch the bride, right? They put the, the older sister, who's not quite as, as lovely looking, actually. She's, got, she's cockeyed, maybe. Uh, whatever. Um, and she, he ends up sleeping in the dark with the wrong woman, who he marries instead of his beloved Rachel. So he marries Leah instead of Rachel on that night when he can't see who's in the bed with him. Now, the rabbis have to make up all sorts of midrashim to explain how he didn't recognize Rachel, even in the dark. And one of my favorites is that Rachel supported her older sister and therefore lied underneath the bed and would answer the questions that Jacob asked so that Jacob thought that he was talking to, to Rachel when he was actually sleeping with, with Leah. Um, whatever the case may be, Jacob still loved Rachel. Eventually, Jacob does work another seven years, marries Rachel. Um, And then the story gets interesting. Because Rachel, like um, her mother-in-law, Rebecca, and like her grandmother-in-law, Sarah, can't conceive. Okay? Everybody with me so far? But Leah, on the other hand, is very fertile. Right? So eventually Leah has five boys. When Rachel can't have any children, she gives her handmaid, Bilhah, to Jacob as an assistant wife so that she can have some children through this assistant wife. And Bilhah has two children, two sons. And so, not to be outdone, Leah gives Zilpah, her handmaid, her assistant as an assistant wife to Jacob, and she, and she has two more sons. So how many are we up to now? Nine. Okay. Um, did I do something wrong? Two, four, nine. Jacob, no, I'm sorry, Leah has seven Seven. It's got to be. It's got to be end up eleven. Okay. So, how many are there going to be all together? Twelve. She's going to have to, that. Jacob. Um, one more try. Let's try this again. <laughs> Leah has six sons. I, it's right here in front of me. Leah has six sons. Each one of the handmaids have two. That's ten. Leah is pregnant again. Okay. And. Rachel has not had any children yet. But Leah knows in a, by the Ruach HaKodesh, by the spirit of prophecy, by the Holy Spirit, that there's going to be 12 tribes. And she, she's pregnant now with a seventh child, and she knows that this is going to be a boy. Now, if that means, if Jacob's going to have 12 boys altogether, Rachel may have a child, right? But if this child is a boy that Leah is carrying, then Rachel will not have as many children as the handmaidens, as the assistant wives. Right? Because she'll have one, the assistant wives will have two each, and uh, Leah will have seven. 
So, as the story goes, one of the two girls, we're not really sure, prays and the sex of the embryo changes from a female, from a male to a female. Now that's the Midrash. How do we know that that's true? Because it's the, sto- the only birth story of a, of a girl in the entire book of Torah is the birth of Leah's seventh child. The child is Dina. Okay, everybody got that? Now the rabbis know that there's something strange going on here, that we just don't bother with the birth of girls. It's just not important, at least in the Torah. How did that happen? Well, it says afterwards she bore a daughter, right? But the word afterwards, achar, is written with the same consonants, and there are no vowels in the Bible, as the word acher. Now, acher doesn't mean afterwards. Acher means another one, and it's masculine. So what do you end up with? You end up with another one, masculine, she bore a daughter. So the masculine fetus ends up being born as Dina. <laughs> you don't find that interesting? <laughs> How long did it take him to figure that out? How long did it take the rabbis to figure that out? So my professor used to say that um, the rabbis created the Beit Midrash for the place where they could go to study so that they'd have a place where they could be boss. (laughs) Um, So when they weren't working, and all these rabbis had professions, when they weren't working, they were studying the text. Every single word counted. Every single letter counted, and every single vowel that wasn't even written down still counted. Yes? And and the Talmud knows of six genders because of that, right? Um, it knows about intersex, and it knows about uh, sexless, and it knows, and it deals with all those. Um, it's not a binary system in the Talmud, but that's not what they're talking about here. But but that's that's that has legal implications as to what laws they have to follow. Okay. Um, but for now, let's just leave it at Leah prayed. Or Rachel prayed, and the achar, the afterwards, becomes an achar, another one masculine. Got it? Okay. But we have said in the law that you can't pray concerning the sex of an embryo because the embryo has has, that sex has been determined at the moment of orgasm. Right? Everybody with me? Okay. So. That's the Midrashic story. The Talmud then answers. Now the Talmud is, the first one that I read you is from the Mishnah. The Mishnah was edited around the year 200. And then the Talmud goes on to continue the discussion. The two Talmuds have two different answers. The Babylonian Talmud, I'm sorry, the Jerusalem Talmud, again, where spirituality trumps even the law, has basically the same story that I just read from the Midrash. The Babylonian Talmud doesn't see it that way. The Babylonian Talmud says um, that um, they 
They, they say, it's, I'm sorry, let me go back. They ask this specific question. Does prayer work or not? Right? And so the answer that they give is the Midrash that's created in the, in the Jerusalem community. In other words, prayer works because of the story of Leah and Rachel and the birth of Dina. Okay? So they actually quote the, the point of, of, the, of the other community to refute it. Because their bottom line is, even if that is true, even if that's true, we don't use miracles to override the law. Right? So, every other fetus that starts out as a male is born as a male. And every other fetus that starts out as a female is born as a female. And then we could add in all the other genders. Um, and you can't pray for a miracle. That's taking God's name in vain, going back to the original discussion. Okay? So the Babylonian, or the Persian uh, rabbinate, basically says to the Jerusalem, the land of Israel rabbinate, that's a nice story. The law is the law. We're not changing it. Okay? Well, then you get to my Tanchuma passage, the passage that I studied, that I was writing my dissertation on, my rabbinic thesis on, um, which then gives the story again, then mentions that the Babylonian Talmud says you can't use a miracle to override the law in order to say in response that of course you can pray for a miracle because Jeremiah said it was okay. Now the prophet Jeremiah said to the people of Israel, if you don't straighten out, I'm, you're going to be like a, a potter's pot to me, to me God. What happens when a potter doesn't like the pot he's making on the potter's wheel? He smashes it up and makes a new one, right? So God says through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to smash you up and start again, make something new. And so the, the, the Tanchum of Midrash says, well, if God can take the people of Israel and smash them up and make them into something new, how hard is it to take a fetus and start it and make it something new? Right? Don't have to crush it, but just to make it something new. I mean, God can do that. Okay? You still with me? I'm going to take you ahead to, what was it? Yeah, 40 some odd years ago. And my sister-in-law is applying to, is, has just taken the law boards. Okay? And she's supposed to get results that day in the mail. She's driven everybody crazy in the family, including her fiancé. Everybody else has to get away from her. They send me to, to try to calm her down. We're driving around, and I tell her all this that I've told you just now, right? That how hard would it be for God to switch a couple of switches in the exam results from her law board so that she passes, Right? Nobody's ever seen the result of, the, of that, and so it's just as hidden as what's in the womb. And so God could change it just as easily for, for her to pass as not, and nobody would know. 
Okay. Now she did pass. She calls her father, who she loves dearly. Um, and we're all sitting around waiting for this phone call. And she asks for me. And she gives me, the, so her father gives me the phone, and she tells me she passed. At which point I share it with her brothers and sisters and her parents. Um, we go out to dinner, just as this Talmudic story is unfolding, in uh, the way I've done it here. We go out to dinner as a family to celebrate, and after everybody gets a cocktail, she, she tells the story that I've told her, right? That she... Beginning with the, the birth, uh, with the conception and the, the child's sex at birth and all the way through the, the Midrashim and all the way through the legal passages back to the Midrashim, back to me telling her that God could switch the light, the, the answers so that she passed. And so she says at the end, so I'll never know whether I passed or not <laughs> or whether Harry's prayers passed for me. At which point, like a good rabbi, I answered, I know. She says, how do you know? Well, I say, okay, I have to tell you back another passage from the Talmud. <laughs> which says that Rabbi Hanina, who was one of these very, very pious rabbis, um, would pray for somebody who was sick. And he would know whether that person would be healed or not. And they say, how would you know? He says, well, whether my prayers are fluent in my mouth. If they're fluent, then I know that God has accepted them and the person will be healed. So I told that story at the table after another margarita. And I said, so I know. She said, how do you know? I said, because I would never pray for such a thing. Because it's prayer in vain. It's taking God's name in vain to pray for something that's happened already. Okay. Okay. Not done yet, though. <laughs> so, so now you, you're with me, right? The sex of the embryo, determinate orgasm, but you can pray concerning the sex of the embryo, but you're not allowed to pray about something that's happened already. But we know that it's happened in the case of the birth of Dina and her mother Leah, but we're not allowed to use miracles to override the law, right? But the, the, the rabbis in Jerusalem say, but if God can start over again with the whole people of Israel, certainly God can start over with something you can't see, like something in the womb. Okay? You up to this point with me? So more or less. <laughs> At which point, the rabbis have to come to some sort of conclusion that will satisfy all the rabbis. Because one of the great things about being a rabbi is there's never one answer, right? There's a, when I had a radio show down in, in San Luis Obispo, it was called It's in the Bible. And I would interview uh, pastors and, and uh, caliphs and, and uh, all sorts of religious leaders, uh, priests from the Buddhist priests, etc. Um, and we would d- discuss biblical passages. And... Um, so my promo code was, two people come to the rabbi who are arguing. One says his side of the story, and the rabbi says, you're right. And the other one gives his side and says, wait, you have to wait, at least hear my side of the story before you say who's right. So he gives his side of the story completely the opposite, completely the opposite. And the rabbi listens to it and says, you're right. 
And the rabbi's wife, or husband in, in any case, is standing at the door and listening and saying, wait a minute, they're saying the completely opposite things. They can't both be right. To which the rabbi responded, you're right also. <laughs> okay. This is this is might sound funny, but this is the way the rabbis feel. They feel if if great rabbis take a position, and they're opposite to other great rabbis, there must be something that that actually makes them all right. Okay. So, what's the case where you can can pray concerning the sex of the embryo, even when the woman orgasms? Even when you can't see the fetus, but a miracle could happen or couldn't happen, when is that possible? Twins is, is kind of the answer, but that's, another, that's an answer to another. It's when they orgasm together. Right? So when they orgasm together, it's not determined by who orgasms first, and therefore the, ch- the sex of the embryo has not been determined by the orgasm. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, women should be thanking me at this point, not the men. Um, so, uh, but, the rabbis know that no matter even in the case where they orgasm together, the, the sex of the embryo is going to be determined by which sperm gets there first, right? They're, they're fully aware of that. So they come up to a further compromise. And the further compromise is, you can pray concerning the sex of the embryo for the first 30 days of pregnancy. For the rest of the first trimester, you pray that it not be a sandal, uh, a sandal, which is a, uh, which is a miscarriage. The next 30 days, you pray for a healthy child. I'm sorry, for a, a safe delivery for the mother. And for the last, 30, uh, last trimester, you pray for a healthy child. So those things are permitted. Okay. That's not the end of the story. <laughs> There's one more part. And that is... The Y chromosome doesn't show up until the 29th day. The Y chromosome does not show up until the 29th day of pregnancy. The sex is still indetermined, indeterminate during the first 29 days. See, when when this happened, when the, when they printed the papers about this and the doctors were getting these papers about it, one of the rabbis in Jerusalem said, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that the scientists almost got it right? <laughs> They're only off by one day. <laughs> okay. So that's the politics. The politics are the, the diaspora community, the exile, the um, expatriate community has to have laws that bind them together in order to survive outside the land of Israel. Inside the land of Israel, even to this day, you can be Jewish just by breathing the air there. And therefore, you want to get people as spiritual to make that air as pure and beautiful as it is when you go to visit Jerusalem and you feel like the air is different. So that 
discussion, which began 2,000 years ago, is still in play today. That's why I call it the politics of prayer. So now I'll take your questions. Yes, sir. Uh, when I was a young man, a Jewish friend of mine said that the, his rabbi was going to have a course for young men in Judaism. And he said, he wouldn't mind if you showed up, even though you're not really a Jew. And it turned out I was the only one who did show up. No <laughs> Jewish boys turned up. So I got a year's course in Judaism. And it made a kind of sense to me, even though I wasn't a Jew. But the deal breaker was circumcision. I've never gotten a satisfactory, to me, explanation of circumcision. Okay. Um, First of all, the, the, the Torah does not give us explanations for any any of the laws that God gives Moses to give to us, except for three. And they're all about the king. The king is not allowed to have a lot of horses because he'll go back to Egypt. And it's forbidden after the exodus from Egypt to go back to Egypt. The king is not allowed to have many wives because they'll lead him to idolatry. And the king is not allowed to have excessive wealth because he'll use it to lord it over his people. And those are the only times when it says because. All the rest of them are don't murder, don't steal, don't, you know, or other versions of it. If such and such happens, then do such and such. So there's both casuistic and apodictic law. Um, So when it comes to circumcision, that's one of the laws. God says, you circumcise the child on the eighth day, and that's it. There's no explanation. Going back to the reason that there are no explanations is, who was the wisest king in the Bible? Solomon. Solomon, we know, had innumerable horses because we've excavated his cities and there were stables, huge stables in all of them. And the Bible said he had a lot of horses. He also was married to an Egyptian princess and he got his horses from Egypt. That's why some people think that the story in Exodus about the king of Egypt is not always about the pharaoh but about the king who belonged to Egypt, that is, the king who was in Egypt's pocket, the king of Egypt, not over, uh, which is Solomon, that he enslaved the people to build the temple, just like the people of Israel were enslaved to build the store cities in, in Egypt. Also, he had a lot of wives, all sorts of political marriages, and we know for a fact, archaeologically and from the Bible, that he built temples for all of his wives so that they should feel at home. In other words, he brought idolatry right to the city of Jerusalem. And he used his wealth to destroy the northern kingdom and to break it up into, into different pieces. So, if, a, if a, the wisest person in the Bible says, oh, I understand these laws so I can do them and I won't break what, the, the, what it's about, um, and then he goes and breaks the laws, and for the reason... And, for the reason that God said you're not supposed to do it. Um, The rabbis say, God didn't trust any of us with the reasons. Having said that, 
I have been told by, um, by doctors that the uh, coagulant, the blood coagulant, the K factor, is not sufficient until the eighth day. And that the nerve development has not completed its course through the genitals uh, by this time period. And I have seen that babies, I've seen babies be circumcised that don't cry, and most of them cry when they're strapped down to the board and they're made, and they get cold. Um, so I'm not sure, so perhaps circumcision is as, as Dean Adele, remember when Dean Adele was on the radio? I don't know if he still is or not. He was very much opposed to circumcision. Now he's a Jewish doctor. Uh, he and his brother both were on the anti-circumcision parade. Um, but he did say that there's no good medical reason for circumcision. There's also no good medical reason not to have circumcision if it's a, of a religious purpose. Um, the final part of that story is that when the AIDS epidemic was spreading so quickly, especially in Ethiopia and some of the African countries, they said that circumcised males are less likely to get uh, HIV because the, the hardened skin doesn't bleed as much and therefore the HIV virus was not spread as quickly, as completely. Um, they said that in Ethiopia, uh, they would never, you know, that men would never line up to be circumcised, even to prevent HIV. But they were wrong. The men lined up to get circumcised. Uh, and it did help reduce the spread of, of AIDS. I'm not, uh, I, my, my sons are circumcised because it was a, the covenant with God, and I, I'm not, not a doctor. Um, I've read a lot of these reports. There is no, uh, there's not a lot of support. There is some, but not a lot of support for the fact that circumcision may prevent cervical cancer and, and things like that, penile cancer, or at least it's less likely. Um, but basically, I believe scientists can prove whatever they want to prove, and so... See, they almost got it right, and then they thought it was 29 days instead of 30. Okay, sorry. So I got that there are these laws about what you're not supposed to pray for and that if you said at one point you cannot pray for it, but obviously you can, and if you do, then you take the uh, name of God in vain. So what? So what? What if you do? Then, so, then what? What if you break the law? So the, the, in the Bible, taking God's name in vain is a capital offense. So what, so what happens? Do they execute you? Or? In the Bible, they would. They would. But that's because they're not just for praying, because there's no prayer in the in the Bible per se. I mean, you have Hannah and you have Daniel and you have a couple of places like that. Um, they're talking about using God's name in vain in a, an oath. Or taking God's name in a, uh, in a in vain in a amulet or something that would have try to control God. Okay, the rabbis then extend that to any use of God's name in any discussion. That's why most Orthodox Jews you you talk to when they say when they're talking about God they say Hashem the name referring to God instead of even using God's name in general speech. 
There is no reward and punishment in Judaism. So there's no um, heaven or hell. If you take God's name in vain, you're not going to hell because we don't have hell. Take God's name in vain, um, you're just you're disrespecting God. And if you, you want to respect God and you want to live a, a godly life, you just don't do that. So the rabbis tried to make sure that they did not, you, you would not take God's name in vain when we begin with a prayer service if you don't mean it. That's the best I can do. Here it comes. Uh, I'd like to return to Ray's question about circumcision. Um, my understanding of the covenant that uh, lies behind circumcision uh, is that it is the father or the, the parents who are exercising, who, who are honoring their covenant by sacrificing the foreskin of their sons. Uh, and I'm wondering two things. Uh, one, how can a covenant be made using someone else's foreskin to, you know, uh, how do, does that uh, sacrifice, the sacrifice seems to me to be the son's sacrifice but is instigated long before the son has any volition in the, in the matter. Uh, and uh, the, the second part of my question is whether this is somehow metaphorically or otherwise a reenactment of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, uh, whether it's a kind of symbolic uh, Reminder of that willingness, in, in which case it's, you know, it's the father's sacrifice, but he's sacrificing his son, so to speak. Uh, I, I'm concerned about the nature of covenants uh, in, in the background of this. I, I don't know if I've even formulated a question here. Um, that's, uh, uh, everything you say is a valid, uh, valid points. And... Um, I can't, I, I don't have a, an answer for you, except we don't use the term sacrifice, we use the word offerings. Um, a sacrifice is giving up something in order to get something better, right? Um, but in, in uh, so I don't, it's certainly not in the language of the biblical priesthood or of the rabbinate to talk about the circumcision as any kind of offering or sacrifice or anything. It's just not the way that, that we look at it. Um, it is the father's obligation, but it is the son's covenant. Um, and how can they make a covenant? So any, anything that we do with our children before they reach the age of bar and bat mitzvah is uh, conditional upon them accepting the commandments when they are uh, of age, which is 13 or 12 and a half for a girl. Um, and so I would imagine that... Um, that had this question come up, and I'm not sure it has, uh, the answer would be this was a provisional entering into the covenant for the baby boy. The father is taking the, the, his obligation, which is to bring the child for circumcision. Um, but then it doesn't, if a, if a baby boy then decides to become something other than, or I mean, if a 13-year-old boy decides to become something other than Jewish, then the Circumcision is a circumcision and not a sign of the covenant, right? 
Um, so, I, it, but I, it, you're absolutely, it's absolutely correct to say that uh, the baby has no volition in this and, and that how could the baby enter into the covenant without volition. This the rabbis discuss. Um, in terms of it being metaphorically a, a like the sacrifice of Isaac, um, that uh, I've heard. I don't remember whether I've heard it in the synagogue or in a church. I'm not sure. Uh, I think that story is more important in the church than it is in the, even though it's, it's read on, on Rosh Hashanah in the synagogue. It's the second day when there are less people there. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I've never heard it discussed in that way, and I, I can't answer. It's a very valid dis, uh, point, and it can be discussed. I just don't have an answer. Okay, over here. Uh, well, um, maybe it's possible that you said that uh, the reason for doing something is not stated, and maybe it's more effective that way, because um, if, if they're circumcised, they can't undo it. So they will always be Jewish in, in that regard. And, and this may actually encourage them to, to be Jewish because, well, they are, okay? And uh, also it's an offering to God. Instead of the lamb, you offer the foreskin. Uh, it is a, a sacrifice, you know, and it's in place of lambs or anything else that's living. And um, also I, I don't know, but is it possible that, uh, that a circumcised male uh, can only achieve maximum pleasure by having sex with a female instead of masturbating? Is that possible? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if the purpose is to keep the Jewish race together and to multiply, that would be a, a, another reason that would, of course, be unstated. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can't even go there. I have no idea. I have no idea about that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, one of the things that I hear, or one of the other reflections that comes to me is like it was the custom, for instance, to take the first fruits to the temple and present it as an offering. And I'm wondering if that's more the, I, I don't know, the background of, of, of this act of circumcision. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to come here and talk about circumcision. You, you kind of caught me off guard. I will say that, uh, that Muslims, based on the story of uh, Abraham and Ishmael, um, that many Muslim groups, including my roommate from Turkey in college, uh, circumcise at age 13 and uh, don't do it at birth. Uh, and that uh, I read the uh, autobiography of uh, Nelson Mandela, um, and the, where he grew up in the uh, among uh, a family tri- clan or tribal group, whatever, that all the males around the same age of 13 were brought to the the red tent, actually is what it was called, uh, and they were all circumcised at the same time. So circumcision is not exclusively Jewish; it's it's something that's done around the world in various cultures. Um, and since it's not specifically Jewish, I can't answer the question of what its purpose is or, or you know, uh, I just don't know the answer to these questions. So I have to. Yeah. Is there any estimate, you know, after the Babylonian exile, because then uh, I guess they were allowed to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the temple and all that. Did, do you think most of the Jews stayed in Babylon 
after uh, dur- you know after the after after they were allowed to go back do you think they did so we know for sure that um, many stayed behind how many is yeah. not clear but i think you can use the example of the united states in 1948 and the jewish community here was about 4 or 5 million jews and less than a half a million actually went to live in Israel after the state was recreated in 1948. So I would imagine that, uh, that it was a, a minority, and perhaps even a small minority, that went back. That went back, yeah. Yeah. That's what it seems like. Now, do you think the ones that did stay in Babylon eventually also scattered throughout the Mediterranean area after that period? Well, uh, Is that possible? The Jewish people uh, were already spread out, even in biblical times. Jonah is trying to escape to Tarshish, Uh which um, most Bible scholars say was Spain. Uh So there there was apparently a community in Spain. We know for a fact that in the first century there was a huge Jewish community in Rome because of the catacombs and the Jewish burials in Rome. We know that there was a huge Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt in the third century before the common era. They have a synagogue that was so big that um, the rabbis that hundred years later, hundreds of years later, said that it was so big that they needed semaphore flags to tell the people in the back when to say amen. Uh, but it is this huge excavated synagogue that we know was, was a synagogue and we know it was huge. Um, so there were Jews all over the world. The Jews uh, spread throughout the uh, North Africa and Middle East with the Islamic conquest um, because Islam does not allow loans on interest. They take the biblical prohibition against loans on interest as absolute uh, in Islam. And so they don't make any loans on interest. The, the rabbis eventually come up with a solution that you're allowed to make loans to uh, non-Jews and you're allowed to make loans to Jews by becoming partners in their business so that you get to share in the profits that a certain percentage, obviously. So it's, it's taking interest. So the Muslims needed bankers. And so the Jewish uh, upper class went with the Muslims throughout the Islamic world and had a very, a, basically a good relationship with Muslims until modern times. Um, so that's how the, they scattered that part. They scattered through the Roman Empire, um, through, uh, through Rome, um, and through Greece. But uh, they went from, from Rome to France, and from France they scattered through Europe, go, going east, sometimes by invitation, sometimes just by spreading out and doing business. Um, so Jews in the, in the Islamic world were bankers. Jews in the Christian world ended up being moneylenders, which is a completely different uh, occupation. So that's how I follow the spread of, of Jewish people around the world. I see, yeah. You know, the, like the Babylonian ones, let's say 500 B.C., they probably weren't very Jewish anyway because that's why they, they were uh, exiled to Babylon because they got into all the pagan worship. And so I don't even... The, I don't think they really were that Jewish in, in religion. It's, uh, you know, it, they probably were as, you know, as Babylonian as I am American. Uh, and there probably was, you know, basically, I think you can use modern times, especially modern times America, United States, in order to understand these uh, communities in the past, because there's nothing, there's nothing new under the sun, and history repeats itself. But today, 50% of the American Jewish community affiliates with synagogues at some point in their lives. 
Okay, I would not call them 50% religious. That's maybe less than 10% that are ultra-Orthodox in some way. Then between the ultra-Orthodox and the partially re- religious, there's people like myself who keep the, the commandments that, uh, like keeping kosher, which my parents did not do, uh, and became, you know, my, my rebellion against my parents was to be more religious than they were. <laughs> Make them miserable about that. And believe me, you can do that quite easily. Um, so I, I would suspect that the Babylonian community was made up of tangential Jews, committed Jews, committed Jews who went back, committed Jews who stayed there, um, and, and people in between. And it was a large enough community that when 500 years later, 600 years later, the Roman persecution got to the point where the sages of the Mishnah and eventually the rabbis would have somewhere to go to, to lead the community. And they had these great uh, yeshivot, which were financed by the, the Jewish banking families. So... what I wanted to say. <laughs> uh, no, it had to do with the, the, the uh, curious relationship between the traditions of reproduction and the, the times, uh, the number of days for this and the number of days for that, and what modern um, scientific studies seem to provide. So the question is, in a way, there are some things that are pretty obvious about sexual activity, Right? But much of it, it clearly had to wait until modern times for anything. And I do recall some years ago, the Bishop of Newark pursued the question of the divine conception. Mm -hmm. Not the miraculous one. Right. And uh, his research pointed out that they had no idea about what was going on inside the woman's body. All they knew was ejaculations of semen. And the woman was therefore more or less an incubator, as right. such, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So, any. So, so the, the rabbis, uh, you know, first of all, throughout our history, there are many, many rabbis who become physicians and doctors. Okay, uh, a lot of our great rabbis, like Maimonides, who was one of the greatest minds, in our, was a physician to the caliph. Okay, um, they were very observant, and they they even knew uh, and write about. IUDs, they write about um, sheaves, which are probably uh, condoms of some sort, and they write about, uh, about a root that can make a woman sterile. We don't know whether it was permanently or, or temporarily. In other words, the pill. So even back then, they, they were aware of contraception uh, in the Talmud, uh, and animal contraception. They, that's where they figured out the IUDs was from the camels. Um, and um, and they, they knew the human body, inside and out. Now, they, how they did that, that, they didn't do autopsies back then, but people died and bodies you know, deteriorated, sometimes before they could be buried or whatever. They were great observers of the human uh, body. And they treated it with great respect, but with tremendous interest. Uh, I remember reading... Um, oh, my goodness. I can't remember the, na- the name of the book. But it's about uh, New Guinea and one of, um, an American scientist going there. And they were pointing out to him in a non-literate tradition. They're pointing out to him which berries they can eat and which ones they can't eat. Okay. Um, that has to be by trial and error, error over hundreds and maybe thousands of years. But they could see the difference between two red berries on a, on a 
what appeared to be a vine. Um, so I think that by observation you can learn a lot of these things. And I think that they, they just, they observed. That's the best I can do for that. This, okay. I, I have a tale. My mother came home from uh, uh, taking care of my aunt who gave birth to a child. And she had two genitalia, uh, male and female. And uh, they, uh, the doctor asked my aunt, what, which one would you like? And she, uh, they chose a girl because she already had two male. Uh, yeah, they, um, <laughs> this, this was common for intersex children, the birth of intersex children. Nowadays, it's not done that way, thank God. Um, and people become what, they're supposed, what they feel that they're supposed to become. Uh, I've dealt in the past with uh, an intersex woman uh, who felt that she should be a male and eventually uh, was I was helping her when I lost track of her but trying to get her uh, the treatments that she would need in order to become male. Um, so uh, yes, it's there are, there are children that are born with two sets of genitalia children children's born with no genitalia uh, and so, it's, it's a very difficult thing. My question is, you mentioned there were six different right. sexes. Can you tell us that? So those, those are the four the, um, with two sets of genitalia, male, female, two sets of genitalia, no, no genitalia. Uh, and then there's, um, there's genitalia that doesn't work. Okay. Uh, and then there's... Uh, um, castrated uh, individuals, which is another case of gender. Unix is a case of gender for them. Uh, Very quickly, could you explain, since there are no vowels in the biblical uh, Torah, can you absolutely determine by uh, context what the word is, or is is it sometimes gray area in interpretation? Yes. Well, as a great rabbi, I know uh, you're going to always be right. Um, so, you know, it's it, it, the the um, the tradition of adding the vowels did not begin until the ninth and tenth century of the Common Era. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls do not have any vowels in them. Torah scrolls to this day still do not have vowels in them. Um, but the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text are almost identical. Um, where the Dead Sea Scrolls sometimes added letters to tell you what vowels were there. They're called reading props, matre lexioni. Um, and so when the Torah was copied from that point on, a lot of those were left out. Some of them were put back in. Uh, but there's ways of knowing the values. Uh, I, if I had a blackboard, I could write on it right now. C-N-Y-U-R-D-T-H-S. Question mark. And you would know that it said, can you read this? Right? Uh, because I saw that on a bus in New York City where they were teaching a new form of shorthand instead of the shorthand that, that was taught a while ago. Uh, this is a new form that was uh, easier to use. And um, they did it without vowels. So um, context answers your question. Tradition answers your question. Um, 
and errors crept in anyway. Um, I was uh, reading uh, a student's paper, and they did uh, they uh, did what's known in the Bible as a datography. They they meant to write one letter, but they wrote the, the letter that was the beginning letter of the next word instead, and so they ended up with I, I can't remember. I can't remember the example, but that happens in the Bible, too. Sometimes you get an extra letter added because it's the letter in the next, and so if you're copying it, you see the next letter, and you put it down in the same in the word before it. Um, so there are... The text itself is uh, was not set in stone until the printing press, and then it pretty much doesn't change at all from that point on. That's the best I can do for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably the only one here interested in foreplay. So my question, <laughs> my question is, is uh, if a man doesn't believe in foreplay and he has many sons, um, uh, wh- what would the rabbi say about that? And my second question is about the books that tell you how to have children and specific um, sexes. Um, is it like a Kama Sutra? Does it tell you how to do foreplay, or is it um, uh, no, more as you would expect? No, it's, it's, uh, 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 how book, to on, on the books are, are mainly interested in you know the best chemical uh, douche you can use in order to. Those are the books. Uh, I don't even I haven't seen them around in a long, long time, so I don't know if they're around anymore. Uh, what if a man doesn't um, please his wife with foreplay? She can divorce him. Um, and that's one of the few. One of the. Um, you know, in the um, I, I've never heard of an ultra orthodox Jewish woman going to the court and saying, "I want to divorce my husband because he's not satisfying me." Um, she has every right to do that for the last two thousand years, but um, their society doesn't really make room for that. Um, otherwise, men, they, there's very few things that a woman can sue for divorce for. Um, but in terms of uh, foreplay, um, there's a great story in the Talmud. Uh, again, I don't know if it's a midrash or whether it's an actual story, but one of the rabbi's disciples, who becomes a great rabbi, uh, wanted, climbs under the bed of his teacher in order to find out how foreplay occurs. And, and it says that as uh, the rabbi was pleasing his wife, she... Um, he, he starts to giggle, and his teacher says, "Are you under my bed?" And he says, uh, "Yes." And he, so my, my professor used to say that the response from the rabbi was "Pashnish." It's not it's not nice in Yiddish, uh, which proved to him that the Talmud was originally written in Yiddish and translated uh, by non-Jews into Hebrew and Aramaic. But that's probably not true. That's just what he said. Um, but it, he does say that's not nice. Get out of there. You know. And his response, the student's response is, "How else am I going to learn?" Right? They didn't have films or books or things like that. So, um, and that's where the story ends. I, I think it's meant to be a joke, but uh, the idea is that you have to learn from somebody. Right? Um, what What's to be done in in case? Of, basically, we did not. When my my second child was born, we did not have a boy's name because all the rabbis I knew had only daughters. And uh, I had figured it's just because rabbis were lazy. Um, and. Uh, and then I had two sons, which meant that I was never going to be a great rabbi. Uh, 
because I had other things on my mind, I guess, rather than Torah or Talmud or whatever. Um, but if you want a serious answer to your question, I don't have one. <laughs> You know, the, the, Talmud, the, the Bible says that after each seminal emission, you have to go to the mikvah, to the ritual bath, in order to uh, become ritually fit and, and suitable for your wife again. Um, and it also says a woman has to go after her menstrual period, and that still continues to this day among ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox women. Um, but the rabbis in the Talmud said uh, men do not have to go after each seminal emission uh, because they're lying. Okay, thank you for your wide-ranging discussion on the topic of prayer. (laughs) And we appreciate you coming again. Thank you.